So good evening, everyone. Um, it's always interesting thinking about what to share during these retreats. And I always want to feel that I'm sharing something, offering something that's helpful, both for this moment, the retreat, and also life, you know. How do we, how do we think about the Dharma? And learn the Dharma. It's like every retreat, it's so interesting how this path is. I've heard the same talks for 20 years, and they're always new when I come at 7.30 or... <laughs> It's like, oh yeah, the Four Noble Truths. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> oh yeah, compassion, right, yeah. And there's something about our minds is that we're very forgetful. You can walk out of a retreat, even drive out the street and go, what did we just do there? You know, <laughs> what happened? And so there's a way that, as we always say this, this is a lifestyle and we have to keep hearing the truth, digesting the truth over and over and over and remembering uh, what it is that we're doing, remembering our intention. It's so easy to get swept away. Uh, the forces in the mind are strong. And they have dug in habits. And we meet them on retreat, these habits of mind, don't we? I always think it's sort of, uh, I, I talked about this in a small group, that, you know, you come to these retreats, often we see the picture of a supermodel meditating. <laughs> and we're like, give me that, yes, I want, I want that. And then we get here, and there's a lot of hope, everything seems perfect, the food is great, deer frolicking by, but yet how's the mind? <laughs> You know, isn't that ironic? Yeah, we could be in, in the heaven realm, and yet the mind, if it's just still, there's suffering. That's what you could say. There's still suffering, even here, at Spirit Rock, <laughs> which has been classically called the upper middle way. <laughs> yeah, we try to take away as much suffering as we can, right? I actually think some way it's a detriment. There, there, there's, there's something about, it, I think, when we're in intensity, you know, that we actually wake up a little bit quicker when we don't have our preferences or face to keep looking at, you know. But here we are, so we work with it, you know. Conditions are always perfect. This is what we have. This is what we've created, and it's beautiful, and it's, um, and it's potential, and you're here, so... And I always think about what to talk, and then it's usually always the same talk. So I guess maybe that was a preference for you tonight. And it's some aspect always of compassion. And I, I've been teaching, I helped to found a center in downtown Oakland, and we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary, the East Bay Meditation Center. And I, I laugh because I've been, I always say, I give the same talk, I hope you guys know, for 10 years like on some version of the power of faith or love, compassion, self-compassion. And every time it's new, like, wow, we never heard that. It's like, no, you did last week, you know. <laughs> I had a day long on it, you were there, you know. But again, it's timeless and there's some things that are indestructible, and 
I feel that I have spent my whole life studying compassion and from many different perspectives and I still feel that I know nothing. <laughs> I've, I'm a kindergartner, preschool, even before that. Uh, about the depths of it and understanding the power of it and the insight into it. And I'm always humbled when I look at my own heart and mind and humbled by all of the great masters who have come and gone. And um, I just bow to it all the time. So I wanted to offer some reflections on what I call insight compassion. And I hope that it inspires you to think of it in a new way or reinvigorates your own practice. It's something to be investigated, actually. It's not that we ever arrive to a fixed place. It's an evolution <laughs> with compassion, and it's a practice and a way of life. And not only that, it's an incredibly wise response to suffering, both the inner suffering that we encounter here in this beautiful place, right? It's, it's all mental here, right? And, but then when we go out in the world, how do we respond skillfully to um, the seven other billion beings who we share the planet with? Right? That gets more challenging, right? There was a woman who came in on the last retreat I was at. She was like, I love this retreat. Um, my heart's so open to myself, but not to the other hundred people who are here, right? <laughs> you might have noticed that. Like, if only I could get rid of... <laughs> Some people have these thoughts, and, and I think it's kind of natural because we're always learning how to live together, be in community. And again, uh, this quality gives us a lot of power to deal with each other, to open to each other, not only to open and deal with, but to learn, to grow from. You know, how can other beings help us grow? There's something about, we actually need them to grow in compassion. You won't grow in it if you're sitting alone in an isolated place, actually. You can't open your heart. You can't see all sides of yourself. So our community and the world actually becomes a very powerful mirror that we look into, you know, that we can learn from. That's also the power of the Sangha. So um, I come as somebody who is learning, and I learn from you as well. These retreats teach me as well. So I like this quote by uh, an indigenous Australian woman, Leela Watson. She said, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And that's why I give talks, I think, because I see, oh, we're bound up in this together. <laughs> it may seem that we're isolated. We might feel that we're alone in our life, that only I have these experiences, only I suffer, I, me. But actually, um, we're all bound up in this together. And that's one of the most powerful things about compassion is that it comes with a very, very deep understanding of interconnectedness. I don't think you could actually open to it unless you understand that aspect of it that it's not just ourselves, it's for all beings. We're interconnected, interwoven. And I'll say more about that, but I want to mention that 
when I say insight, it comes as a response to suffering. And this is where I've tried to take compassion apart in my own mind. Like, it can't be that great, so let me analyze it and try to find a defect in it. <laughs> where is it not skillful? Where is it uh, unwise? Or how do I, you know, and I keep coming back to, no, it's almost a quality of perfection because it responds to suffering wisely. So when we sit on the cushion here, we revisit our lives. Has anyone noticed they having a life review? <laughs> kind of starts off at kindergarten and goes up, right? And it's like, oh, God, I can't believe that happened. Oh, my God. We look at how we respond, how others have responded to us. And as we do this life review, we encounter the tangles, aren't we? Don't we get a little entangled? And some of what happens when we sit here is untangle the tangles of our mind. You know, that was a classic uh, statement the Buddha said, who can untangle the great tangle? The whole world's in a tangle, inner tangles and outer tangles. So here we sit here on our cushion and we have our share of the tangle. Right? And we go, oh, I didn't do that. Or they did, okay, yeah, I can let that go. Okay, I forgive you. Okay, yeah, I, you know, we sort of unpack our mind. But when it gets hard and when things arise that are difficult, sorrow and anger and fear, how do we respond to that? Because if you sit here long enough, it all arises. Sometimes we even go to the underworld of the mind on retreat. You know, the underworld is the, the darkness. <laughs> classically, right? We go down into the underworld, often as depicted in shamanic stories and, uh, you know, mythological stories as we, we go to the underworld to rescue part of ourselves that's fallen down there. The part that's buried, the part that's forgotten, the part that's dying. And we, we go on a brave mission because often what's down there is usually what scares us on some level, an emotional level. It could be a trauma. It could be our own rage that we don't want to open to. We have fear that it's atomic, nuclear, right? Or maybe it's a sorrow that we just goes back so far, so deep, we think, I, I can never feel this. I could never be with this. Or forgiving ourselves or somebody. So all of this comes up on retreat. That's what's not depicted in those pictures with supermodels meditating, right? You don't see the underworld and the, all the rah, right? You just see the bliss. And that often happens, you know, at the end, usually as people are running down the hill. They go, yes, right? The opening. And funny enough, that's usually when people start signing up for their next retreat, is as they're leaving Spirit Rock in those moments. And they imagine that when they come back, they'll pick up right at that spot. <laughs> It'll just straight to the sun, right? No more underworld, no more shadow, no more. But our, our life isn't like that. It's, it doesn't go in this linear way up to the light. It actually, actually sometimes is a drop, a descent, a big descent, a major descent into confusion and hatred and just everything that we didn't think would happen on a retreat. 
you know? All of the places that Pema Chodron wrote her book, The Places That Scare Us. That's the underworld. And we can be with these places in order to open and learn from them. And we bring compassion there. We have to bring compassion there. If we don't have the mind that has a certain amount of love and compassion, we actually can't open to ourselves fully. So we, we live within walls, right? If we, can't, if we can't develop this quality, we live sort of blocked out from ourselves. And that attributes uh, or contributes to numbness. And I talked about numbness, and some people asked me about that quality, that feeling of, I no longer want to feel anything, so I just kind of turn everything off. Right? I just, I don't want to feel any of this. I don't want to be here. I'm not a part of this. All of, you know, this is a hot mess and I want to go out. So sometimes our, our spiritual lives take on that flavor. And I meet people who contact me or they come and they go, Spring, um, can you teach me how to go to the light? How to get out? How to... I, I, no, that's not what we teach. <laughs> that's not what the Buddha taught. As much as we might want to escape, you know, and that feeling of escapism is very strong right now. It's like, you know, anything but here, anything, you know. They, they said, like, uh, the Costa Rican website crash for uh, visas and uh, people trying to go, you know, move there a few days after the election. And, it, and politics aside, doesn't really matter. What we really are looking at is the quality of our heart, regardless of you know, the outer, what, how do you respond to yourself when you're alone? How do you respond to yourself when you're suffering? Because that will be the response that you have to the world. If you're numb to yourself, you'll be numb to the world. You'll be numb to it all. You won't feel what's happening. You won't be in touch with yourself. You lose contact with your heart, your body, your intuition. You lose everything, but just it becomes a mental. We stay in our head. And we don't grow so much on the path in that way. We can't grow. It's as if we're rowing. I always use the analogy of being on a boat and seven billion people going on little boats downstream. Stream of consciousness. I was, uh, the stream metaphors and ocean metaphors resonate a lot with me. The, the ocean of samsara or the stream, and we're all going down. And those people who have a sense of this compassion and love, they're upright in their boat, right? And in and, and, and any, any journey, there's the raging waters and the storms and the, the twists and the turns. You don't escape that. That's just part of what you get here, right? It's always going to be bumpy. You might not like when I say that, but it will always be bumpy. That is the nature of samsara. Um, it's always changing. So we're in our boats, those people who have this love and compassion, they're upright. If we don't have that, what happens is we tend to collapse uh, every 10 minutes. Collapsing is okay, but if you've ever flipped over in a kayak or a boat, it's pretty exhausting to get yourself up again and then to keep going and then to flip over again. So you're going down, we all are, but how are you getting down? How long is it taking, <laughs> right? And how, much, uh, how many difficulties are you having? 
So compassion for me, I recognize this as a really important quality. A few years ago, uh, I told this story, and I'll just tell it briefly. A few years ago, I got really um, just overwhelmed and kind of burnt out. I had so many projects going and was doing so much and and all these different communities. And so I just needed a retreat. So I decided to do a five-month retreat. And I was curious to think about where. I'd done retreats in all, all over the world at that point. And I thought, well, the Sande de Cristo Mountains in Crestone, Colorado had been calling me. Something about that, that place, that land up there. And I thought, yes, that's the place. And the Crestone, Colorado is very interesting. A woman owned a family owned huge amounts of land. I'm talking millions of acres. And in the 70s, she started giving it to spiritual organizations. And I think the Tibetans got huge amounts and the Karmapa and their their communities and the, the nuns and the Zen center. and their, So the whole city is really divided up in these spiritual communities that have retreat centers there. There's a yoga community and a, a few gurus there that have a little... <laughs> little center there and it's a bit of a spiritual hub and so I felt very called to go there and there's a little Tibetan center so the Tibetan center was quite small it was only eight people and it was in the same lineage as I was practicing in so I went there and I spent the first two months there and there was eight of us practicing but after a while I started to feel stifled and a nun came and she told me about a retreat cabin way up in the woods uh, and she said, uh, you know, she kind of made a little challenge, like real yogis do these kind of retreats. And I, I thought, wow, you know, this would be so great. I'll go up into this cabin. No one will bother me. That was my first thought, right? No one will, I'll be alone. I'll be one with nature. You know, I projected the image of the supermodel blissed out, right? Oh, it'll be so great. You know, you, when you want something, you tend to only see the good in it in that moment. You don't have a unbiased uh, view. So I was like, oh yes, this is this will be really great. So uh, I went up and looked at it and it was very remote. There was no cell phones, no computers. I had none of that with me anyway. I was doing a lot of Tibetan purification practices. So I was doing thousands of prostrations, saying mantras, and I was very involved in that at that time and just connecting in that way. Those practices resonated. And so there I go, I, I went up and they, I had set up with a little, uh, there was a little organic market owned by this cute couple in the town. And they supported all the local yogis. Throughout Crestone, there's people in cabins all over, several in life retreat, actually. Um, so I was very inspired to be up close to those mountains with them. And um, so they brought up food about every 10 days, but they couldn't really get to the cabin. I would have to walk way down. The road was just too bad. And um, we would meet kind of at this halfway point and, and uh, they brought the same thing. It was fresh vegetables and then I had dried goods. And um, I was like, okay, three months, here we go. And I thought, I'll be my own teacher now. It's time. I had a huge stack of Dharma books and that was it. And I was like, you know, the worst thing that will happen to me is a feeling. I analyzed it. The worst. Okay, I've sat through feelings before. How bad could it be? Well, you know, <laughs> we're scared of them for a reason, right? 
So, and then there was this crazy, funny caretaker, kind of one of those mountain uh, uh, people who never goes into town much, and he was going to bring water, and if there was an emergency with my stove or something, it was a wood stove, no heat, I had a solar panel for a little bit of power, and the refrigerator was a tiny fridge. I was lucky to have a, uh, they had just put solar panels on it, actually, for a nun who had stayed in there. And um, then there was an outhouse outside. And so uh, he would bring water up and I would bathe on the deck, just pour it on my head. And, you know, that was it. And um, so, yeah, he would come every 10 days. So as he was dropping me off, he was like, okay, I'll see you in 10 days. You're going to be great. And as he went down the hill, I, I went, wait, no. <laughs> this is all a mistake. <laughs> I really can't do this. <laughs> well, little did I know, I, I think I did. I'm glad I had done two months of compassion practice before going into that retreat because within a matter of hours, I descended into the, a sorrow I'd never known. I call it African sorrow, actually, because it was some grief that went so deep. Water poured out of my eyes for hours and hours. I just, it was no, there was no end to it. And then at night, this fear would grip me as it got darker and darker, you know, and I was in tiny little cabins, so I would shut the windows that I could hear sounds of scratching and scaring. And I would just imagine being, I just knew I was going to be, you know, dismembered by some lunatics in any moment or bears or, I, you know, the mind. So I would shake all night long in fear. And my body was just doing it. And so my days became hours of just sobbing and it started turning into songs actually. It was like these whales. My body was just doing it. I, I started to see right away, wow, something's going on that's way bigger than me. What do I do? This will actually drive me crazy. I don't know how to ground this. So I was prostrating a lot, uh, taking refuge, of course. And then I started to realize, oh, wait, I need to call on the great chief of compassion. And I started praying for compassion, bowing to compassion, and compassion started to come. And as the compassion grew, my ability to be strong with that process of purification, that was happening. Because really that's what we're engaged in here is purification. That's what we, we are unveiling something and it can be difficult. And at night, the only way that I could sleep, because as soon as it got dark, my body just started shaking in fear. It was like, okay. And I would rationalize the fear. I would think, spring, you live in East Oakland. That's way scarier than here, you know? <laughs> but I recognized right away it was primal. It didn't, it, it wasn't about what was, you know, this was some other kind of terror. And I started, the only way that I could sleep was I put these cushions, I had a tiny little, um, bed area and uh, I would stuff these my zabutons and cushions kind of like what you're sitting behind me and I would imagine they were these giant bosoms of mother earth and then I would just kind of scooch down and I could imagine these giant black arms coming and I only could sleep for limited amounts of time if I had that image if it fell away I would wake up in terror and then have to re-lodge myself and it was like being in the arms of the you know, compassion itself. So it became about that, and it went on for three months, and I could say a lot. And uh, 
but I'll stop there. But it was after that time that I started bowing and seeing compassion in a completely different way as an actual power. And then I understood all my Tibetan teachers. <laughs> ah, and I understood all the yogis. My God, they must have went through this kind of thing. Started thinking about all the people throughout time who had went off to places to awaken and heal and on the earth. And it was a very primal retreat because I would spend time on the ground. And there's something very humbling about being outside, you know, the earth bearing witness. The Buddha sat naked on the earth for years. It wasn't an intellectual thing. It's very primal what we're doing here where we are uh, remembering something, waking up from, to something, our true nature. So after that experience, uh, I was different when I came home. There was a lightness in me. I could tell, and it was very interesting, almost the day before, the two or three days before I left that retreat, I felt the joy coming. And people, when they saw me you know, coming home the next weeks or two, they, they would never have known that that happened. You know, they're like, wow, you look so bright. <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, something happened in there. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still learning from it. But what I, what I came to understand, too, was the depths of interconnectedness while I was there. And um, interconnectedness is this fundamental teaching in Buddhism. It's a worldview that sees oneness in all things. And there's no separation deeper than appearance. And as much as people try to say there is, there isn't on the, on the deepest level. And um, everything is interwoven. The recognition of interconnectedness is a huge motivation for our lives. For me to stay in the cabin, thoughts of the interconnectedness and bodhicitta which means for the benefit of all beings, is actually what kept me staying there. If it would have just been for myself, I would have left. I would have been like, this is way too hard. But I kept thinking about my community. And that motivated me. I started to think about all beings. That motivated me. Compassion itself motivated me. Um, and, and especially the interconnected part. You know, there's this quote by Black Elk that I like. He says, and while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell and that understood more than I saw. He was on top of this mountain. He said, for what? For I was seen in a sacred manner, the shape of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. Martin Luther King also understood interconnectedness on a very deep level. He puts it this way, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. So there's this really profound truth of this that we don't see because of the egoic mind that we're, we grapple with loves the individual. It thrives on the me of separation. It needs a war, actually, to survive. 
compassion becomes a powerful antidote to that distorted view because it takes us out of the I into the we. What's best for us, right? And the ego thrives, the sense of self thrives on this one thought, I, 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 me, 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 I. Have you noticed this thought as you've been sitting here? Everything becomes me, I, I, my, I. Such a heightened level. Often when people are going crazy, it's like, yeah, it's that. It's this fixation on I. The moments where they're the happiest is when they describe, oh, spring, I was up on the hill. It was so quiet. There was a turkey. There was a bird. I like, yeah, that moment of I fell. <laughs> and that opens up in that space is what? Profound love. It's like, between the eye and the eye consciousness squeezing that out is this profound sense of interbeing. That's what happens in some ways. Meditation is remarkable. It's like we sit here in the present moment and somehow the more we sit here, the more the truth appears. When I was talking to John Kabat-Zinn, uh, the founder of um, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, we were at a conference a few years ago and you know he's written all these books and all this stuff and and I was talking, we were talking about compassion, and he said, you know, here I am heading into the end of my life, and I can sum mindfulness up in one word. And I was like, what? What would be your final statement on a life's work? Loving awareness reduces pain. I don't know how, I don't, you know, that's it. <laughs> that's my, you know, final thesis. So here we are exploring that on some level. So interconnectedness, back to that for a moment. Ecologist and Buddhist teacher, and my dear friend Joanna Macy, I taught a retreat with her here a few months ago. Um, she sums interconnectedness up this way. She says, our lives are inextricably interwoven as the nerve cells in the mind of a great being. I like that. Like I said, interwoven here. And... Um, Another level that I've been very connected to is understanding interconnectedness on, on multiple levels. And one is nature itself, to understand nature, my nature, my true nature. And, you know, we, we could say that we're in the middle of a fourth turning. So in the Buddhist tradition, in this Buddhist vast cosmology over the last 2,500 years, there was... When the Buddha, they say, he awoke and then he walked to Sarnath in India and he gave his first teaching. They said the earth quaked in four directions as the Dharma, this great wheel. I always imagine a wheel and somewhere in the universe started turning. The wheel of truth, the wheel of truth was set in motion. The path was re, uh, uh, uncovered, reestablished. Now the Buddha didn't invent this path. Right? And it was simply in the early days called the way, the way. Now it's grown into a whole thing, you know, with beads and this and that, right? But it was just called the way, the way to end suffering. And you could say the Buddha, the Siddhartha Gautama, he just cleared it again, as if we have to clear these pathways all around here after the winter. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to find it as you walk around this, the land here. So he, he clears the land, he cleared it, and he showed us this way. And the first turning was this idea of um, individual liberation. 
It was kind of like, I can free myself. And then a few hundred years later, there was another great turning of this wheel. And that becomes the Mahayana view. And it says, oh, we can attain liberation. <laughs> right? And then enter in all these texts for the benefit of all being and more about the archetype of the Bodhisattva. Then another great turning of the wheel happens and that becomes this, the, the Vajrayana tradition, right? Tantra. And we're not just talking about Tantra as far as sexuality. It's been a bit kind of morphed here in, uh, in the States. We're talking about the view that we use everything as liberation. We end duality itself, right? There's no more good and bad. We, we use all of it to awaken, right? It's just everything. We use hatred to overcome hatred. We use desire to overcome desire. The end of dualism, and you see that quite open now, non-dual schools and a lot of different teachers. So that's what we mean. We don't create high and low, separate. We use everything is the path. And now we're in another turning, which is what we call, uh, Joanna and I talked about this, we call the age of Gaia, Maha Gaia. Maha means great. And we take the three earlier views and then we expound it another level to include, oh, this earth interconnectedness, we are connected to everything that's alive. It's a whole nother level of understanding Dharma. And also people have referred to this fourth turning as the, the sort of the, the green revolution or the science age, the age of science. But I used to be afraid of science entering into Dharma thinking it would take the heart out of it. But it's been the opposite. It's actually proven the heart. It's actually proven interconnectedness. So I see that as a really good thing, right? Many people are skeptical about the power of compassion, but now we are seeing it scientifically, right? Um, multiple levels. So um, there's a new term that you might have heard called the wood wide web that I love a lot because I was so interested in nature. So the wood wipe web, wow, this is so two people that I've been following a lot. One is Forrester Peter, or Peter Wolben, who wrote a recent book, The Hidden Life of Trees. We also have The Hidden Life of Plants that came out early on. And also uh, a really, really amazing, young, uh, incredible scientist named Merlin Shedrock. And he's the one who actually uh, coined the wood wipe web. And he talks about the implications of the wood wide web as they've been studying it. It's between plants and fungi. And he talked about these two trees, the sycamore trees, that they were in relationship together and how the whole forest is a network. And they're starting to see how when one tree very far away is sick, all the other trees send food and nutrients there. How they're actually they're seeing, oh my God, the whole what they thought was just the trees, all of the plants together are working together in one forest system to create that ecological harmony, right? And it was fascinating. He even goes on to talk about a dying tree might divest itself of its resources to the benefit of the community. For example, a young seedling in a heavily shaded understory might be supported with extra resources by its stronger neighbor. Even more remarkable, he writes, is the network also allows plants to send one another warnings. A plant under attack can indicate it to a nearby plant that it should raise its defense response before the uh, attack is reached. Uh, 
It has been known for some time that plants communicate above ground in a comparable way by means of airborne hormones. So this just goes on and on and on, this, this, inter, this, this amazing connection. So what does that mean for us as humans? If this is our, we are plants. Our body is water, you know, our bones are elements. We are the elements. We are fire, air. This, we are Gaia, <laughs> even though it doesn't seem like that. So this is sort of this kind of living of harmony is in our DNA, this interconnectedness. So when we act out of alignment with that, we actually go against our true nature, right? The, the, in the forest, and they go on and writing about all this stuff, how they didn't find one tree that acted as, as an individual, and he highlights these two trees. It's two sycamore trees that were basically best friends. <laughs> and they sent each other all this energy and they grew. And, and you see this looking around. You'll see actually trees merge in the forest around. Have you ever seen that? Two giant trees come together. When they look at that under the microscope, they see all this connection, love, and spirit. There's like an aliveness happening there. So everything is alive. And we know that indigenous people tell us this. They live this. I spent a year living in the upper Amazon area from 2014 to 2015. I was very interested in the wood wide web, how I interact with nature, how nature is me. I was also very interested in plants and the liveness of nature. When I went down there, I was deeply inspired by Shipibo people and their understanding of plants. And they would always say, uh, they called me Primavera, that's my name in Spanish. They always say, Primavera, listen to the plants. Because, you know, I would always want to ask these very analytical questions, and they would just look at me and go, no, just just listen to the plant, you know. And they would sit hours on decks. This is how you live in the jungle, no electricity, no power. And they would just be very still. And I would think, what are you doing? Like, listening to Gaia, listening to the plants, right? And there's an intelligence that is woven in them. They feel the spirit, the aliveness. You know, be careful where you walk. Everything is alive. And so this is important for compassion's sake because what it does is it moves us into this framework that is we, the people. We are connected to the earth. If we lose contact with that, we destroy it unknowingly. We don't feel our impact. We don't understand that we're connected. So it's important that we start to feel again. Retreats are so good for that. We learn how to get back in our body to feel, to feel. Even people say when they're on retreats, they see things with greater clarity. I could see now, right? I saw this butterfly and it was so vibrant. It's like, yes, let the the numbness and the, the, the veils come off, how we see, how we hear sound, how we walk in our body. All of this is very important, uh, and it's all rooted in some kind of compassion, the compassion that is connected to all of life. There is a great story. Um, I'm getting to a place... Um, where I love to talk about science and ecology and how it all fits together, you know, this revolution of consciousness and also the movement toward diversity. Because the plant world, it doesn't matter if the plant is short and hairy or tall and, I mean, it's, it doesn't fly out. They work together. 
you know, there's a sense of, no, not those flowers. We don't, you know, like trees don't operate in that way. It go, again, that goes against nature, the laws of nature. It, it's not inherent in us. It's taught that. Um, and over the years of working in Oakland, I, uh, you know, having so many conversations and we tried to create this very diverse community and it opened my heart as well. You know, because what I learned there was I had to keep stretching. When we first opened, we were saying, okay, we love all beings. We're here for all beings. And then all beings started showing up. <laughs> and we would have these different affinity groups. We would say, okay, this is for the LGBT, and this is for the POC, and this is for people with disabilities, this is for Spanish speakers, this is for teens, this is for families. You know, and then other groups would come. And then we had a group of people with multiple chemical sensitivities. And I said, what about us? And then I would think, we can't fit you in. You know, that would be my, I don't know how to fit you in. And then a group of Korean men will come, what about us? And I would think, what, what, what are we going to do? How do, how, do we, you know, how do we do it? Because each group needed us to make a little change. You see? They'd say, well, in order for me to feel safe here, you need to change this. You need to change the name of that. The name. And at first I thought, I can't do it. My heart won't stretch. But then I started to see, no, this is radical. This is so good. This is teaching me how to love all beings. I can read it in a book forever, but can I live it? Can I see real community and go, yes, you. Okay, you want me to change the sign and then do this. Okay, I get it. This is what is going to help you feel happy here because really at the end, it's about you. <laughs> it's not about my preference. <laughs> this is built for you. It should be about you. <laughs> Again, the limitation of I, right? It was compassion that made me open. So for me, diversity isn't just about being nice to someone. It's actually a radical view that will liberate your heart if you allow it to. It will show you where you're shut and help you open and go, oh, yeah, yes, yes, we are connected. I like also when I travel in South America and I spend time with indigenous people, we always refer to each other quite naturally as brother and sister. There's no need to have a conversation. It's like sister. And even when I travel in other parts of the world, in India, people are always referring to me as auntie. <laughs> and then I refer to them as friend. Right? Do you, we don't have that sense so much in the West. Brother, sister, how are you? Do you meet your coworkers like that? Right? Or your neighbors? Because that implies a f we're, f we're one, we're family. And what happens to your family and what happens to my family is important. And this is why compassion is so important because it opens us to loving not only ourselves but others. And through loving other people, what I've discovered is I love all parts of myself because there's a mirror. Whatever I can't open to is something I don't want in me something I, I can't fully integrate. So it becomes uh, very important to reflect on that. Compassion, the word means care. You know, I care about suffering. I care about it. And I learned this very early on, not only from um, studying the Dharma, but just in my own life, when I would see suffering as a child, a very strong desire to alleviate it was there. 
That's what compassion is. It sees suffering and it wants to alleviate it. Even though I know I can't alleviate the suffering of all beings, it doesn't mean I don't care about that. In fact, sometimes I hold the Bodhisattva prayer. So I want to read it to you because this is what the Dalai Lama chants every morning. And it's very powerful. He says, um, May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles, and for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like earth and sky, until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. So this is a quote from Shantideva. Shantideva wrote this book, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. And this book has been my refuge the last month because I got very disheartened at the suffering. I was in Oakland uh, a couple of days after the election uh, teaching on the people of color night. And as I got there, there was 200 people there. And as we were sitting in the meditation, a riot happened in downtown Oakland. It was happening, but it kind of surrounded us. And the helicopters as we were sitting, could, they were right over the head. And I could hear police on bullhorns shouting, move over. And then it was so hot. This heat came in the room. It was unbelievable. It was emotion. And then the tear gas started coming in the room. So we had to shut the windows. We could smell the tear gas. And as I looked down and I looked at the chaos going on on the outside, as I looked down and everybody, I thought, for the benefit of all beings, this is, I'm going to use this moment. Right? So diversity also for me means now I have to stretch even farther. (laughs) That means people who might hate me, my family, my tribe, my community. That means, oh, wait, you mean now I have to keep opening? I thought the hard work was done, right? It's like, no, out of compassion. It's like, wow, can I expand even more? Even more to hate people confused. To hate the, you know, to understand it as confused mind, right? They're still my brother and sister, even if they forgot, you know? It's like, can I hold that view? You've forgotten. I'm going to hold that view. You've just forgot, and I'm going to wait and be patient. And that's like some faith came, right? So again, it's the compassion. Like, I will wait for you to understand this. And I won't hate you for not understanding. You only can understand what you can. You only can know what you can know. Um, and knowing that my prayers are affecting them in a powerful way, like holding it, because as we move towards more openness and compassion, the whole is affected. See, I don't, my Tibetan teacher once said, Spring, you don't need everybody to wake up, you just need a, a small percent. <laughs> so don't worry about that. Just focus on you, and you're, you know, immediately. You only need a, a small percent of healthy cells shifts the body into wellness, <laughs> right? We, we, move the, we move the diameter, we move the, 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 uh, the boat around. So 
I trust that I'm willing to wait for as long as it takes because I really don't have a choice. <laughs> we don't really have a choice, right? You know that? We just, we are patient, we wait. We wait for ourselves too. It's not just waiting for others to get over something. We have to also look in our own heart. And where, where, where is my heart shut? How can I open? This is my really my only practice now. Is how can I keep opening and seeing the wisdom of that? Seeing the um, seeing the importance of it is really all I ever teach. Some teachers. Um, I'll just share this one last thing. Some of our um, Buddhist teachers went to Standing Rock, to Nisara, and um, they were called there by some of the elders who were asking for clergy to come. And so they went there and we raised money and we put a little uh, a, a yurt that uh, was built for meditators to come in and out of. And, um, and as Tanisara and some other uh, teachers were there, they started to talk with them. And you know, there's this prophecy about the seventh generation that is very dear to the Lakota. And they're saying that in seven generations there'll be a great merging, great tree of life and all the colors will come back together again. And there'll be a healing on the, on the planet and they were saying this is the seventh generation. This is the, this is the now generation. So maybe it's the millennials, maybe it's us, maybe it's you. <laughs> you know, so... There's um, faith, and we need faith, and compassion gives us faith. It gives us courage. It gave me courage and strength in that cabin to endure what I felt was unendurable. It gave me power I see in Tibetans who have weathered the storms of the worst brutality, you know, and they say, ah, compassion got me through, right? And I think, wow, I stand in the shoes of that. No, Dr. King and Nelson Mandela and Cesar Chavez and Thich Nhat Hanh and thousands of other people, we stand in their shoes and think, yes, okay, I too can open. Don't underestimate who you are. The deluded mind always tells a story of worthlessness. That's often its biggest game. You can't do it, you're worthless, you'll never, you have issues, so go hide away, go away. But the true teaching of compassion in this real purification is to you to see your Buddha nature, right? That there's power in everyone here. There's power in the heart. It's soul force. It's, it can destroy a billion lives, <laughs> you know? And I really believe that. I don't, I, I don't question that at all. The truth is indestructible. A thousand lies can be told, a million can be told. Um, and always the truth will stand on its own. It, can't, it cannot be destroyed. Not, not by how much we might try to mitigate that force. So take refuge in your heart. Trust in it. It's your GPS system. Cultivate compassion. It's so needed for the healing of our world and ourselves and all beings. Even Gaia, when, you, when I was in the forest, the people, they never wore shoes. And there was big snakes at night. And, um, and they were always saying, Primavera, don't wear your shoes. You know, feel where to go. You'll know where to go. I was like, oh. And then, I mean, everything was alive. The whole forest floor was moving. You know, and I was like, walk on it. You know, and there's mud. And I would have to walk way on the other side of the jungle. And there was no light. Sometimes when the moon was covered. 
And they would say, just close your eyes. And I was really scared to do that because I wore these big, thick rubber boots, you know, which they thought were very funny, you know, because I was like, no snakes are getting me, you know, while I'm walking around with my, all my lights and everything, you know. <laughs> and often they would just, you know, have a little tobacco walk or whatever, you know, that just very little light. They didn't need it. They could see, you know, and they grew up there. And so one night I thought, okay, this is it. They're teasing me so much. If I die out here, I just die. Forget it. I'm, I'm going to do it. If they take, you know, if I get bit by something, I just do. Uh, so I did it. I took this long, long walk. And I, I just felt the, the forest in a way I'd never had before. And I, I got it. There was something about being barefoot. It just made me remember more of my true nature. And that's what they wanted. Then put a barrier there. Yeah, you are this. This is you. Don't put barriers. And I, I was like, ah, oh, they were telling me that so long. I got it. And it didn't mean I didn't wear boots the next night. It just meant, <laughs> let's not have idiot compassion, as <laughs> Chogram Trumpa said. Right? I did wear the boots still. But I, I got the message of why they kept asking me to remove my shoes. I, I finally did get it. Uh, so, so thank you for your attention. And... I hope this is helpful in some way because my liberation is bound up with yours. <laughs> so on behalf of all beings, uh, we're in it together here. So we'll just sit for a moment. May any goodness that has come from our practice, may we dedicate it to all beings everywhere. period and then there will be another sitting if you're up for it. (laughs) So thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.